Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode is brought to you by Great Hearts Academies, a nonprofit network of K-12 public charter schools offering a rigorous classical liberal arts education grounded in the best of the Western tradition. Great Hearts operates 34 academies in Arizona and Texas, serving over 21,000 students with plans for further growth underway. Great Hearts is in search of exceptional school leaders who embrace a classical and liberal philosophy of education and who possess a well-grounded vision for the moral and intellectual formation of the human person. Learn how you can join a community of classical leaders by visiting greatheartsamerica.org careers. That's greatheartsamerica.org careers. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to cerceinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Well, I got a great question for tonight. The question is, what do you mean? (laughs) This is such a great question. What do you mean when you say that grammar is the art of interpreting signs? Have you heard me ever say that? Grammar is the art of interpreting signs? Probably you haven't had to visit too many of these sessions to to hear that, yeah, many times, right? And the thing I love about this question is it's self-referential. Do you know what I mean by that? I I love when things are self-referential. In other words, what do you mean by grammar is the art of interpreting signs? It's almost like saying the same thing twice. What do you mean by saying what do you mean? In other words, interpreting signs is saying what do you mean? Or you maybe want to say what does it mean? And so I want to talk with you tonight about the question, what do you mean when you say that grammar is the art of interpreting signs? Now, let me just take a... um, a basic point here, call this a prologue, then I'm going to talk about context, and then I'm going to talk about practice. So my basic prologue point here is that if you've been been in, in these sessions, you know that I've got a thing for the seven liberal arts. I come back to them all the time. I believe that they are really, in some mysterious sense, the seven pillars of wisdom. I was slow to believe that, but I've come to. I believe that the seven liberal arts are what kids can learn, and therefore that's what we should be teaching them. And so when we talk about grammar here, 
We are talking about grammar as one of the seven liberal arts, and in particular, one of the arts of the trivium, which are the three verbal arts. So when I say grammar is the art of interpreting signs, I don't mean to be making that up myself. I mean to be delivering to you something from a very ancient tradition. The Bible talks a lot about interpreting signs. Um, Aristotle talked a lot about interpreting signs. Northrop Frye talks a lot about interpreting signs. And in fact, I could have pretty well covered, you know, given time, I could have drawn ideas and authors from every century for the, of the last 30 centuries. There's even a passage, get this, there's even a passage in the Iliad where somebody writes something to another person. Okay, and, and Homer, understand, is, is reciting in a preliterate age. So when, when Homer himself lived, they had a Phoenician alphabet, but they didn't have vowels. Some people believe the vowels were created specifically for Homer. And you don't really have the alphabet as we think of it until you have vowels. Well, why would they have made vowels for Homer? Because he's singing, you see. It's poetry. And so you need to hold certain sounds longer. That's what makes a vowel a vowel, largely, is that you can, you can hold on to it. So there's a sense in which people believe the alphabet may well have been, as we think of it, developed for Homer. But he's writing in a preliterate age. But already in that preliterate age, or he's carrying forward stories, there's one adventure in the Iliad where somebody, he describes it like somebody who wouldn't know what writing is would describe it. Somebody put signs on a piece of, of wood or something and delivered it to another person. It's really interesting. So as far back as Homer, we're already getting writing in some bizarre sense, some proto-writing sense. But we're getting reflection on meaning and how to communicate meaning, how to embody meaning. So... When we talk about grammar as the art of interpreting signs, that's what I'm referring to, is this whole long tradition of grammar as one of the three arts of the trivium. And you know that logic and rhetoric follow. Also, it's important, I would, I would suggest, it's helpful at least, to understand that I do include in grammar what we now talk about as the um, formal grammar, which is to say the, the form of a sentence, right? It's called formal because it has to do with forms. Because forms are important when you want to interpret a sign. Example of this would be the stop sign. You don't even need the word on it, do you? If you see on the road a red sign with a shape with an octagon, you know it's a stop sign. At least here you do. So what does all this have to do then with interpreting signs and grammar? That's basically what you do when you see a stop sign. You, you interpret it automatically. You're exercising grammar. Okay, so that's, that's sort of a, a prologue. One other point in my prologue is that I want to bring into you another word that is not exactly the same thing, but is very close to the word sign. And that's the word symbol. Okay, symbol. You remember that the word devil comes from diabole, 
Can you hear any comparison there between diabolical or diabole and symbol, symbolical, symbolic, is how we say it in English. Well, dia, in the way it's used in diabolical, has to do with tossing apart. Okay, But sim is another Greek prefix, which means together. So fundamentally, what a symbol does is it brings things together. That's a crucial concept when we talk about signifying, when we talk about meaning, right? Here's an interesting thought for you. Can anything have meaning if it's utterly by itself? Is it not really the case that the more something is isolated and individual, the less meaning it has? That in fact, nothing can escape relationship, nothing can escape likeness, but if it could, what it would escape is meaning and significance. So you, you cannot think of meaning as something that exists by itself. All right, that's, that's enough on prologue, but symbol, I want you to see how symbol is, is going to come into this. Now, let me give a, a brief introduction I kind of already did, but what we're asking when we say, um, when we ask, when we interpret a sign, what we're asking is, what does that mean? So the question is saying, what do you mean when you use the, the sign grammar, the sound sign grammar, and, say, and, then you, and then you attach it to this other sound sign, interpreting signs, right? Do you see what I mean by that? How, how you can make signs with, with your hands, right? And you can make signs like a stop sign. You can make signs as pictures, but you could also make sound signs. We call them words. What's a word? It's a, it's a sound that has meaning. Well, why does it have meaning? Because we've decided that this particular sound is attached to something else. Right? So I can, I can take the name Wendy, if you don't mind, Wendy. I can use the name Wendy. Your parents did this. They took the name Wendy, the sound right? Wendy is such a great sound because it sounds like wind, which is air blowing across, right? And so the name Wendy, they decided, is a sound that they were going to attach to this person. So that when they wanted her to do something, they would say, Wendy, come here. Or when they wanted to show affection to her, they'd say, Wendy, I love you, right? So they, so they, they imbued into her or attached, let me just say they attached to her, the sound sign, the word Wendy, okay? It gets really complicated though. Part, if, if, if I've lost you already, forgive me, because two things that I find really, really hard to do when I'm trying to teach something, one is to get very simple, and the other is to explain complexity. It's really comfortable in this middle range where we don't have to pay attention to details and we just kind of move between the complex and the simple just naturally without worrying about it. But to get really simple on a concept, that's hard. And then to draw that simplicity into the complexity without losing it, that's also really hard. But that's kind of what you're doing when you're talking, when you're teaching. 
Okay, so what we're doing when we say grammar is the art of interpreting signs is we are saying we're asking to learn how to determine the meaning of a sign or a symbol. I noted somebody just wrote that this reminds them of literary theory. Well, literary theory in the contemporary college to the medieval or to the ancient would have been called grammar, 90% of it. Well, I don't know what percent anymore, but a lot of it would have been. Because now you can also have history and ethics that people will mix up with literature. But literature is a thing, right? It's different from history and ethics. You can think of it as a separate thing. But what we mean by literature often is just grammar. Right? Because, what, because what we're doing in literature is learning how to interpret signs. When I say just grammar, though, understand, I mean something pretty rich. In fact, I guess I'll mention this. I'm worried about running out of time now, but I'll mention this. Our term literature comes from the Latin term literare. Literatura. Dang it, I forgot. Literas, 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 which literally means letters, as in A, B, C, D. It comes from the Greek word, not the word, but it's a translation of the Greek word grammatikos. Now you see grammar, right? Grammatikos means letters. Literas means letters. Literature is letters. That's why you'll hear, uh, you'll have a phrase like what David Hicks likes to use, humane letters, right? So all of these things are connected. All of these things are, are under the concept of grammar. Now, I'm glad you mentioned literary theory because that launches me into, past my introduction into the context. And there's three points I want to make about context. So far, all I've said is that when is that interpreting signs is asking the question, what does that mean? You can do this with stars in the sky, right? Doesn't mean you're going to get it right every time. But people ask, what does it mean that those stars are shaped like that? So you can ask us about anything. In fact, the Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So you can interpret it. Okay, but that's... That's what I've got said so far, okay, in my prologue and my introduction. Now, my con- the context I want to talk about here is the sort of big picture, the context of being itself. Interpreting signs happens within a world, and you either live in a meaningful world or you don't. If you don't live in a meaningful world, You can't escape the human need to have meaning. This is sort of existentialism. The summary of existentialism is that the world has no meaning, so you create your own meaning. Okay? So we live in a world that we were created to live in, and we were created to interpret it. This is important because when it comes to teaching your children or your students how to interpret signs, the first thing you need to know is you don't have to. Not at the basic level. You don't have to. They know how to interpret signs. They're born interpreting signs. They're born making signs. But if you can get really good at it, then you can do good for those around you. You can speak better. You can communicate better. Okay. So the first point I want to make is that we live in a universe in a cosmos that has meaning. Secondly, we 
ourselves have meaning and we have an impulse, a necessity, if you like, to interpret and to create meanings or to interpret meanings and, to in and create meaningful things, which I think is the same thing. So we live in a cosmos with meaning and we, we look for and want to make meanings. The next thing I'll point out is that every single thing that God does that we are aware of signifies something. See that word? It signifies something. What's the root word of signify? Anybody catch it? It's sign, isn't it? If everything God does signifies something, then that means that God is constantly making signs. And what we want to do is learn how to interpret the signs. That's grammar. So what we've got again is this connection that we've talked about a lot of times between the cosmos we live in, which is meaningful, the mind that we would think with, which is capable of perceiving meaning, and the God who spoke it all into being as a meaningful thing, as a cosmos that signifies. God, cosmos, and man, all interconnected. And how? Through language, through grammar. And so that's the context. All you've probably heard me say, everything is analogous. There's nothing you can't compare to everything else. Right? So if anybody ever says to you, you compare two things and somebody says, there's no comparison between those two things, they're wrong. They're probably speaking rhetorically. They're probably saying, you know, what you're trying to compare here doesn't, that's, that's wrong that specific comparison. But to say there's no comparison between two things is always an incorrect statement, logically and literally. You always can find a likeness. Everything is analogous. Now that's important, because as I mentioned earlier, meaning is significance, is in a certain sense symbolic, and what a sign or a symbol does is bring the two things together. So one of the keys to interpreting something is finding what is similar between them, finding what is alike between them, and noting what is different. Now, let's keep pushing this a little bit, and, and let, me, let me talk about the practice of it now. Grammar, then, is learning how to read. And I want to read to you, ha, see what I did there? I want to read to you a wonderful sentence from Northrop Frye, speaking of literary theory, in a book that he wrote called Anatomy of Criticism, which I'm going to say is the most fascinating criti criticism book I've ever read. Very controversial. In fact, it's so controversial that they had Harold Bloom write the, uh, the, um, the foreword to it. And in the foreword, Harold Bloom basically says Fry got it wrong. But <laughs> you always like a foreword that says the book isn't worth reading. But here's li li listen to this now in a in a, in the in a an essay called Theory of Symbols. Listen to what Fry says. This matter concerns the use of the word symbol, and then he defines it. Listen to how he defines a symbol. 
which in this essay means any unit of any literary structure that can be isolated for critical attention. Very abstract and hard to follow. I'll come back to that in a moment. Now he gives a list. Now listen to what he lists as possible symbols. A word, a phrase, or an image used with some kind of special reference are all symbols when they are distinguishable elements in critical analysis. Even the letters a writer spells his words with form part of his symbolism. Okay, so notice that. What he's done there is he's told us that here's a, here's a bunch of symbols. He won't go for the hierarchy, but he'll say, letters are symbols. We can follow that, right? Letters are symbols. They, they mean something. They, they mean a sound, more or less. Okay, words are symbols. They don't just mean a sound, but they mean a sound that we've attached to things. But then he goes on and says a phrase. A phrase can be a symbol or an image that refers to something. Now, I'm gonna push it a step further and say even a form. Either, either a form can be a symbol or a symbol can't communicate without a form. Maybe letters and words and images and phrases, well, phrase is a form, isn't it? But maybe all of those things can carry meaning because they have forms. Now, what I want you to notice here then is we're now into the practical. It's very abstract, I'll grant you that. Right now we're very abstract, but that's because I'm trying to get very simple, believe it or not, because this is where it gets very practical. The question is, if language is a pile of symbols with meanings, which is redundant, how do I teach my child to interpret those signs and symbols? You teach them how to use letters, you teach them how to use words. You teach them how to use phrases. You teach them how to use images. You teach them how to use forms. You teach them how they work. Now, here's the trick. Here's what's hard about this. Most signs or symbols are conventions. Most of them. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, we just make them up. Some people go so far as to say they're just arbitrary. Is there some reason that the word red signifies the color of this? Is there some reason that we, we settled on that particular sound? If there is, it's so far back, nobody knows what it is. So therefore, some people would say it's just flat out arbitrary. I don't know if it is, but I could believe that it is. Maybe, maybe a couple got in a fight about whether they would call that red or green, and, and finally they settled on, on red. Who knows why? The point there is that conventions, you can fight about them. But if you don't have them, you can't communicate. Conventions, their language, if you like, is the ultimate tradition. They're handed on to us. Imagine if when you were born, you decided that you were going to become a completely independent thinker. You know what you'd have to do to become an independent thinker? You got two options. One is you only use your own words. 
which would make you very independent because nobody would know what you're talking about ever. Or else it would make you tyrannical. The second thing is that you master language so completely and so totally that you actually can break free from every constraint that there possibly is within language and become God. But other than that, I have no idea how a person could be truly an autonomous, independent thinker. To try to do that is a waste of time. You, you are a member of a community, and your community has given you language. And you live that language, right? You think with that language. That language is the way you access the world you live in. So then the question becomes again, given all of that, how do we teach our children how to interpret signs? And the first constant and main way, which everybody does, you don't have to be a teacher to do this, is you use them. You talk to your children. You make your children listen to you, right? You, you read to them. You want your children how to you want your children to get good at grammar? Read to them, talk to them, and make them listen and make them read. That's how you do it. Now, there is, of course, the question of how exactly do you um, I don't know, um, practically day to day drive these conventions into your child in a, in a way that isn't cruel and tyrannical. And do you notice the way I'm using that language? I talk about cruel and tyrannical because underlying an awful lot of modern language theory or teaching theory is the idea that it's unkind to force a child to learn grammar. It's unkind to teach your child phonics. They should just use creative approaches to expressing themselves in both cases, right? It's very romantic and charming, but it disconnects that child from their heritage. It's a lot like being a really rich parent and saying to your kid, you're going to have to go out and make your own money. That's okay, but not when they're two. And so, so, so we, have, we have always had the challenge of passing the conventions of language on to our children. It's one of the greatest gifts we have in any culture, even if you have a debased language. And I don't even know if there is such a thing, but even if you yourself have a debased language, the best thing you can do for your child is pass that on to them because they can fix it. Thinking improves your use of language. You can do that just by thinking, just by asking good questions. But there's really something powerful in having a rich, language experience. And if you want to be educated, if you want your children to be educated, then the fundamental difference between the educated and the uneducated is that the educated learn a lot more language. They are able to interpret a lot more signs. They're able to move across wide contexts, enter into very different realms, and still interpret signs. For example, they might go to Rome and be able to communicate with the natives in Latin. That was a joke. They might be able to go to Germany and talk, speak German. They might be able to go to England and speak Oxfordian. They might, 
You know, they can, they can move from one context to another and interpret what's going on. Do you see how there's something very much like this in, in, in just social, I'm sorry, in, um, yeah, social skills, let's just call it. What makes a person socially skilled and another person less socially skilled? The one who's socially skilled can interpret gestures better. He knows what it means when somebody makes a gesture, right? And, can, and knows how to make gestures in appropriate ways. And it's all about that propriety. Um, so, so, so what you want as your goal here in interpreting signs, there is no perfection. There's no mastery. Only God can do that. But what you want is to have a child or a student and a self that can relatively easily move across different dimensions and contexts and still skillfully interpret the signs. Now, I am one who believes that there is an incredible diversity to the human race that is so gorgeous and so beautiful and so compelling and so desirable that to do anything to undercut that is wicked. It's undercutting the divine image. But I also believe that there's something so common to people everywhere that anybody can move from one culture to another, from one world to another, and given enough time, they can find the analogies between the cultures and learn to move across cultures. So I'm going to summarize everything I've been saying here, and then I'm going to ask Katie to, to, to add something um, on the practical front. But I'm going to summarize everything by saying that what you want to do to teach your children, your students, grammar is give them a very constant and a very rich experience of listening to good, high-quality language a lot. And that means reading to them and talking to them and playing music for them that can sustain high-quality language. And you want them then to build on that by learning how to make signs themselves, which is to say speaking and writing, painting, making music, and so on. This is all, I consider all of this in a certain mode, in a certain sense, grammar, although obviously language is the, the starting point. And then what you want to do is you want to make sure that they get put in situations where they have to translate. And I mean that metaphorically and literally. In fact, I just used the word translate as a sign with multiple meanings. Okay? And first of all, I simply mean translate from your own language into another and from another into your own language. In other words, have them learn a foreign language. I think that's crucial for, for, for every educated person. We should be learning foreign languages. I also mean to translate contexts, social situations, artistic activities. They should be able to look at a building and understand the meaning and, the, and nowadays we call it the worldview, the philosophy behind the building. They should be able to instantaneously look at a building and, and identify what the builders of that building believed about the world. They should be able to look at a painting and interpret the meaning of that painting. Right? Those are actually grammar activities, you see? All of those are act activities of interpreting signs. So you start with, let's call it the elements of design. A pho phonics is an element of design. A sentence is an element of design. Rhythm is an element of design. 
Paintings also have elements of design. Music have the elements of design. Teach your kids the elements of design. And if they learn that, then over time, they will be able to interpret paradigms, worldviews, cosmologies. But it all starts with teaching them how to listen, talking to them, and then as soon as they can, teaching them how to read and write. Now, I didn't get into, um, you know, what's the best way to teach phonics? Um, what's the best way to teach various things? Because that would have been too detailed for today, and I've already gone way over. Um, but what I want to summer, what I want to get at here, what I want to emphasize is the importance of grammar as all this meaning in the world just sitting there as something for you to feast on by interpreting it. And when you interpret it, you make it your own. And when you teach your children how to interpret the world, you teach them how to make it their own, how to name it, right? And in that is a wealth that nothing else can replace. That is, is it safe to say the best thing you can do for your children, at least in terms of education, which is so much more than just schooling, is to teach them how to interpret signs? It's the foundation of everything else. Attention underneath all and then interpreting signs on, on top of that. Okay, I'm going to stop now and ask Katie to add some thoughts on this, maybe on the practical side. And then... Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll just stop. So thanks. Well, while you were talking, it struck me how intuitive this is for kids. Um, cause I was reminded of that game that kids play with that's half red and half blue and it's different shapes. And then you, you know, you open it and the shapes come out and you have to put them in. So it helps young children figure out how shapes relate to each other. Um, that's like yeah. on the most basic level, yeah. what we're doing with grammar and, as we go, as we go on, as, as the children are getting older, it's the same thing, except the symbol that you're trying to put within the space starts to look more and more different from the shape that you're putting it into. Um, but you're still trying to pick up something and see if it fits into something else. So on a practical level, if you're teaching and you're trying to figure out, well, what does this mean in terms of actually teaching my kids? Um, have them pick up something, maybe a noun, and put it with other things and see if it fits. So if a child says that a verb is a noun, then have them go find a bunch of nouns, put that verb next to the noun and see if they fit. And then as your kids get older and older, they'll start to draw connection between things that look more and more different, but find ways for them to still fit. So kind of start with that really simple form and then watch the forms take on more complexity, yeah. but like still fitting together. I don't know if that metaphor makes sense out of my head. That's for me. And, and I love the way you're bringing here again, the whole idea of simplicity and complexity. And how do you get, how do you get the bridge between the simple and the complex is by analogy, isn't it? It's always finding these comparisons and likenesses. And that's how you can live with a complex world and still see the simplicity within it. In fact, you just took a very complex concept and explained it with a simple image. You're going to say something. Oh, just just that, yeah, that trial and error, that 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 key mode of exploration of setting things together. Um, it allows everything to open up, yeah. and 
Um, yeah. it, it makes teaching so simple too, because if they say, Hey, this is a verb and it's a noun, just give them three verbs or three nouns and then you're, you're done. Like it's, it's quite, it's very straightforward and intuitive. So. Yeah. Good. And that's really what we're talking about with my medic teaching. By the way, I'm, I'm going to be on Friday. I think it is. I'll be at the ACCS conference and I'm going to be doing a talk called how to teach anything to anybody. And it's going to be about that whole my medic teaching approach. So if you're interested in that, please uh, sign up for the ACCS conference and come hang out with me for a bit. And then next week is the SCL conference. Um, that's excellent. Thank you for the, the very concrete image of it and the practical application. Um, there is one question that I'm going to pick up here from Sarah, and this will be my one minute question, my, you know, my little one at the end. What's your opinion of the philosophy that children should not be forced to learn, but will learn something when they want to? I, um, I hear it all the time and I'm inclined to reject it. Well, there's a simple and complex to this, right? Human beings by nature want to learn everything. However, there's two problems at least. The one problem is naming and the other problem is sin. And what I mean by naming is that conventions, what kids don't want to learn conventions. This is why they don't, this is why it's so much work to teach them phonics. And it's so much work to teach vocabulary. And it's so much work to give them analytical approaches to, to, to a poem or something. That's all convention. That's stuff we've agreed to. But it's not, it's not the part God created. What they want to learn is the things. And, and at school, what you do is you learn, you learn, you learn conventions for everything. They need to learn the things. That's what they love. So the purpose of the convention is to make the thing accessible. But you can't measure. You can't give grades for how well they can see the thing or the idea. And so, we, so school has become the realm of convention or naming without anything even there that's being named. And kids hate that. They despise that because that's not learning, right? The second, now, just let me add quickly that the, the solution to that is twofold. One is make sure the convention, the name, actually has an animal being named. And second, there is a beauty to forms that we use when conventions can fit together, right? So we can make beautiful poetry, and even if you don't know what it means, you can love the sound of it. It can be musical. And that's, that's for example, Shakespeare. I never know what he's talking about, but I always love the sound, right? And I, and I think, therefore, at, um, the, the sensory appeal of the convention is something not to, not to, not to belittle. Um, but the main problem is that in school, you're drawing people out of the world, putting them in an arbitrary, I mean, an abstract environment and thinking about conventions. And they think that what's happening to them is they're being separated from reality. The great thing about homeschooling is it's, it's, it's for shorter spurts, typically, and you can put them right back into reality much faster. Um, then the other thing is sin. And I mean that both in the sense that because they're sinners, they're lazy, but also because you're a sinner, you're lazy. Um, forgive me, but that's just the way it is. Um, I'm always intrigued by people who believe that children are totally depraved, but don't spend much time thinking about how they as parents are. But anyway, the point being that, that we hurt our children. We hurt our students. And then when we hurt them, they associate that pain with the learning. And then they, then they don't want to learn, right? And sometimes we hurt them because we're bad. And sometimes we hurt them because we're not, as, not particularly good at teaching on a given day. 
right? Or maybe we're in a bad mood or whatever. Or maybe we aren't seeing the reality behind math, let's say. And so then they're frustrated because they can't get it done. And we're sinners. So we yell at them for being frustrated and we blame them, right? And so what do they do? They internalize this whole thing and they say, oh, I hate math, which is an act of mercy. Because what they should be saying is, you're a jerk. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have, shouldn't have come right in and said that. But look, we're all jerks. And that's part of what we have to accept, right? It's a good thing, in my opinion, for us to go to bed at the end of the day and say to the Lord, I'm such a jerk. Please forgive me and help my children do so. We just have to. Katie, I'm such a jerk. Please forgive me. Right? We have to. There's so many times that little girl up in the right-hand corner of my screen cried because of things I did or said. Right? It's just what we do. And so there's a big, huge part of our, our, our teaching that has to be our children have to learn how to forgive us. And how are they going to learn that? By us forgiving them, right? And so, right, we, we just have to accept the fact that we are sinful and they are sinful, and that undercuts learning. But if we were angelic beings and, and, and uh, had all the time in the universe and nothing ever got in the way and we didn't have to trouble ourselves over names, then yeah, your children would love learning always on every occasion. And, and it would be, you know, you just have to wait for their readiness. What's right, though, about that point is that readiness is an awfully big deal. And when we try to get them to see something that they can't yet see. They can't, so they won't. When we try to get them to understand something that they can't yet understand, they can't, so they won't. But when they can, if we can time it right, if we can bring it in when they're ready, which sounds really delicate, and sometimes it is, but generally speaking, it isn't. When we can teach them something at the right moment and help them see it, yeah, then they love it. Because by nature, they love truth, right? The only time we don't love truth is when it's telling us something about ourselves we don't want to know, or the world. But I mean, the fact that, I think we've talked about this already, the fact that the lawn is green, I love that fact. That doesn't, that doesn't cause me any trouble. The fact that it's brown, that causes me trouble. That, that's a truth I don't like. But that's because it affects me in a way I don't, don't want to. So in other words, if they're ready, and if it's a healthy environment, they love learning. And in general, when the opportunity comes along, they're going to do it. But there's just so much. I mean, you stop to think about it. There has never been a truly educated person in the whole history of the world, ever. When you think about the amount of time we have to educate and the amount of wickedness we have to overcome, nobody, nobody's ever been well-educated in this world. Never, except Jesus. Other than that, never. But we just do the best we can. We have to. I love the way, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas put it. He said that, um, I've seen different translations, but it's basically the, the, the smallest knowledge of the biggest things or the greatest things is worth infinitely more than the largest knowledge of the most petty things. But that we can have. We can't, we see through a glass darkly, darkly but, but we still can see, and it's worth it. So let's get what we can. Yeah, thanks for this note from Katie there. Um, this is why the mimetic, mimetic process emphasizes the preparation stage above the others. Yeah. Um, 
Unfortunately, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think you have to register at the ACCS website. It might be, it's repairing the ruins. Go to repairing the ruins. Um, but but I've, I've argued that when you teach any lesson, any Logos, if you're going to measure it, 40% of the lesson should be occupied with what Katie has called the preparation stage, which is to say raising to their awareness what they already know, assessing their readiness, bringing them to a gap, getting them right to the edge of the gap, but making them feel very comfortable in your presence and in the world they're living in. And it's a world of beauty and learning in which, let's face it, if you're going to teach your child something new, it's going to be tiny compared to what they already know. So why not let them know that? Right? We, 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 we let them feel like this new thing they're going to learn is colossal. And they feel so small up against it. That's because we don't spend enough time preparing them and, and making sure they're ready for it. So um, the the other thing, okay, I'm gonna I, I should end with that because I I took up too much of your time again. I'm gonna pick up this question of the how do I teach it then in the next session. But send in questions, please. And the last thing I want to mention is that the um, we have gone live. If you haven't heard about this already, with the online Circe conference, and I'm kind of excited because usually. You know, it takes about three hours to fill the conference when we do it live in person, but only 225 people can register. And this is really good news. 380 people have already registered for this conference. So I'm excited and I hope you're among them. And if you register for it, it's free. It's, and tell your friends too, it's free. We do ask for a donation if you can make one, and you will have access to every single talk in the conference and the recordings of them all. So it won't be a conference where you have to choose between sessions. If there's multiple breakouts at the same time, you can go to every one of them. Uh, we will have uh, the Classical Consortium. Andrew Pudua, you were in here. Are you there you are. Andrew's going to be there uh, with the Classical Consortium. So there will be some orderly wisdom that he'll communicate instead of the chaos that you hear from me. Um, a great lineup of speakers, more or less the same speakers as, as we're, we're coming to our conference, but a few others, um, more or less the same. Um, and our theme is steadfast gratitude. I, I've been thinking about the, this question, how dare you give thanks now? Right? Who are you to be thankful now? And, you know, we have to dare sometimes to be thankful and, and we have to be steadfast in our gratitude. And so that's what we're going to think about. I am a, I am a complainer. I am by nature. No, I am by disposition, a complainer. Now, I've practiced complaining my whole life. I am a master of complaining. So time to learn how to give thanks before it's too late. So that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. Uh, gratitude is the key to happiness. Yeah. Well, is that my melancholy? Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Just accuse me right in front of everybody. <sighs> All right. Fine. The j yes, the Jabberwocky. Thank you. If you want to see contortions of language, Alice in Wonderland is fabulous. All right. 
Are there any other comments or questions? Speaking of not having time to do anything, have you given a little plug about your atrium class this fall? Oh, thank you. You should do that. Why don't you do, why don't you do that atrium plug? Yeah, so it's, it's part of the atrium program, which is similar to, it's kind of like a halfway mark between a webinar or classes like this and the apprenticeship, which is a full three-year program. So the atrium is one year, but it's pretty intensive time where like twice a month you get lecture time with dad. And then once a month, it's more of a tutor time with me doing the LTW, the Lost Tools of Writing. And the focus for the atrium this fall is rhetoric. And we're going to be looking at how rhetoric has been understood and used throughout history. Um, and then also thinking about it as we teach it as teachers, thinking about it from the perspective of students um, and kind of trying to take it out of this scholastic intellectual setting and apply it to, well, use it for what it is, which is all of our lives and everything that we do. So viewing it from this um, holistic perspective. So um, the course is going to be using the Iliad as an example of how rhetoric has been understood and how it's far more than just some, some subject to study. Um, and then it'll also be, there, there will also be some primary text documents from different philosophers throughout time and rhetoricians. And then that would be just like a simple reading assignment, like maybe 10 pages per week. Um, and then there will be LTW, Lost Tools of Writing. Um, you won't have to write your own essays. All the essays will be given to you, and then I'll explain those during those individual tutor times. So it's a really holistic, comprehensive perspective of rhetoric. And Dad and I will be doing it together. So it's going to be a good time. I'm looking awesome. forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. She, she is an awesome daughter, and she's an awesome scholar, too. I think, I think you guys know that she's, she does have her master's degree from a pretty good college. And well, a good university. I don't know about the college. And we don't and, like to be what? We don't like to be called a college. I'm well, just, yes, yeah, of course. <laughs> but um, she's really learned how to study. She was born studying, and she's very much more organized, scholarly, and systematic than I am. So I'm really excited about teaching with her because she's able to take some of my scattered thoughts and make sense of them and, and put them in order. And we're actually going to be um, in this class, the, the, the class companion, instead of giving you a textbook, we'll be writing more or less the class companion, which will include five to 10 pages written by she, her and me, by her and me, and then excerpts from classical works on rhetoric and then you'll also read the Iliad. So um, if I have a quibble with Katie, and how can I allow her to speak without quibbling about something, I, I, would, I, would, I would not have myself described what we're going to do with the Iliad as an example. I would, I would take it more as the Iliad is the supreme mother text on rhetoric, and it provides examples within it of everything you'll ever have to deal with in rhetoric. And I, I do honestly believe that there is no better book that you can ever read, no greater tool that you could ever find on rhetoric than the Iliad. And so we're going to take the, the Iliad and examine it for its rhetoric 
for what we can learn about rhetoric. And then we're going to compare that, for example, with Paul in 1 Corinthians, which I think is the, 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 the text the Christian must deal with. If you're going to teach kids rhetoric, let me put it this way. If you're going to teach kids rhetoric and you don't have them read Homer and you don't have them read 1 Corinthians 1 to 3, you're going to produce a, dang a dangerous person. Probably. I mean, there's other things that can be done. But what Homer does in the Iliad is he doesn't just say, here's, here's how to do it. What he says is, if you use rhetoric, you're going to be dangerous. And here's the damage that can happen if you are careless with it. And then Paul just directly challenges the rhetorical tradition in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. And if, if, we, can't, if we can't wrestle with what Paul is saying and, and come to an answer, then we should not engage in or practice rhetoric. Otherwise, we're sort of, we're letting ourselves have our Christian life over here and our scholastic life over here. And I just, I can't accept that, not for myself. So that's what we're going to do. You're going to see Homer, you're going to see Paul, Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, little bits, a history, like somewhat like if, the, if you were in the class this year, some, somewhat like that, but it's going to be more, more practical and more, um, what would you say, more conceptual? It'll be simpler, I'll say that. Oh, Jen, um, current state of affairs, huh? Yes, that is why we're studying rhetoric. And uh, let me add, too, that's why I don't believe that you should teach your children relevant things in school, right? I don't believe, for example, that you should have your class debate what should be done about some current issue because they can't do it, right? It's, they're too invested in it. Either they, either they know they're going to look bad if they hold the wrong position or they're, they're going to they're gonna disagree with their parents, which they don't want to do. Or, you know, something's going to happen if they're dealing with current issues. So I never try to do that with students. What I want to do is deal with totally irrelevant things, like should Caesar have crossed the Rubicon? Who cares? You ever see a marriage split up over whether Caesar should have crossed the Rubicon? Right? Have you ever seen brothers fall into civil war? I'm talking about recently, about whether Moses should have crossed the Red Sea. Right. So, so we're going we're gonna to talk about irrelevant things, because by doing that, you can learn principles. And then learning the principles, you can take those principles and bring them into our modern context. But to ask a 14-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid in school to, argue, to, to, to debate issues like slavery or like civil rights or whatever, they're not going to be able to do that. It, they're, they're not much. Look, if you think... if, if, if <laughs> If you have a hard time with the way Congress does it, put a bunch of 14-year-old kids who actually have that kind of responsibility and power dealing with it. I, I mean, to me, it's self-evident that that's not going to work. So anyway, so yeah, it, but it's about, it's for current affairs so that when they grow up, they have some wisdom to give the world. And, and, and yeah, I'm going to dare say that I believe that we are in the state we're in today because we didn't teach our children rhetoric when they were little. We, had, we, we got them thinking about current affairs and relevant issues instead. And so they learned to be upset about everything. Well, there's a rhetoric of silence. Okay, well, with that, 
May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.